What will be your expression of love to your neighbors? Well, if you're here, you're new today. I'm Brett Milliken, one of the pastors here at Mosaic Church. Welcome. So glad you joined us here this morning to worship Jesus and see what his word has in store for us this morning. And what we're doing this morning is uh, coming to the conclusion of our Love Where You Live series. Now, over the last uh, month, we've looked at how we can love where we live, coming out of the book of Proverbs through uh, the way we do our work, through the way we pursue justice through the way we manage our wealth and our finances. And today what I want to do is, is kind of tie a bow on all of that by taking a look at how we can take these amazing truths and concepts and actually live them out in daily routine of life inside our neighborhoods. And we can take loving where you live beyond just some concept we discuss on a Sunday morning to a reality that we live out the rest of the week. Because I think all of us believe and would agree that when we say, man, loving our neighbors is something we ought to be doing. I mean, it's one of the things Jesus commanded us to do, right? And we all agree, man, yes, I want to do that. And yet how often do we actually ever do it? I mean, how often do you take the time to get to really know who your neighbors are, to learn their stories, their ups, their downs, their ins, their outs, their joys, their sorrows. I mean, how often do you really look to meet their needs and to, to serve the people that God has put in closest proximity with you? Well, sadly for you and for me, the answer to that question is often not often enough. So today I want to take a look at why that is and how we can overcome it. In his book, The Holy Wild, Professor Mark Buchanan said the reason that it's so difficult is this. Busyness makes us stop caring about the things that we care about. And not only that, but busyness also robs us of knowing God the way we might. See, the correlation here is this. If we don't know God the way we might, we will never love our neighbors the way we ought. And our busyness is what gets in the way of that. Keeps us from caring about the things that we know we should care about, including the pursuit of intimate knowledge of God. But what is the answer to that dilemma? Well, the answer is what I like to call the wisdom of presence. And so what does Proverbs have to say about presence? Well, let's take a look. Starting Proverbs 12, 26. It says, one who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. Do not forsake your friend and your father's friend, and do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. And so today I want to take a look at this wisdom of presence under four headings today to see how we might not only become the people who make an impact in our neighborhoods, but who really impact the world at large. I want to look at the concept of presence, the caution of presence, the courage of presence, and the king of presence. Now, when we talk about being present, we're not simply talking about some cosmic roll call that God is taking just to make sure you're physically in the room like your middle school teacher used to do. When we talk about being present, we're talking about something completely different. Being present is much more than just occupying space within an area of your town. As Webster defines it, presence is when someone or something is seen or noticed in a particular place. In other words, presence is when your being there makes a difference. I think about it, we all have people in our lives that their being there, that when they enter the room, when, when their name pops up on our caller ID, it makes a difference in our lives. It could be a spouse, a friend, a child. For me, when my wife Melissa walks in the room or when she calls me, I take notice. 
right? She's not just some woman who happens to physically occupy the same space as me. She's the woman that I want to physically occupy the same space with me, right? Because her being there makes a difference in my life. And why? Because she loves me. She cares about me. I know that I matter to her. The same is true with my kids, man. When my kids FaceTime me in the middle of the workday, I mean, my heart leaps with joy because I know they're just simply calling to see how daddy's doing. They care about me. And when I know and you know someone cares about us, that we matter to them, then their being around us makes a difference, doesn't it? It's making your presence felt. It's living life in such a way that when people see you walking down the street, when they, their kids run over to your yard to play, when they see your community group and cars staggered all down the street, they rejoice because they know they matter to you. Are we living life that way? See, but what kind of life produces that kind of presence? Well, Proverbs tells us, it says, the one who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Now that word guide literally means to gather information for the purpose of leading somebody in the right direction. Kind of like being a GPS in your neighborhood. In other words, Proverbs is saying that the way we make our presence known is by getting to know the people around us so well that we can pinpoint where God's purposes for their life have gotten off track, have gotten derailed, and we can reroute them back into those purposes, and they can course correct our lives as well, by the way. But what is the right course? As Morgan mentioned a couple weeks ago, a lot of the language in Proverbs is presupposing that there is a, a right way, a right course in which we ought to be moving or living. And that's exactly the point that Proverbs is trying to make here. See, from Genesis to Revelation, Scripture paints a picture of two ways. There's the way of God's kingdom, and there's the way of man's kingdom. See, Genesis tells us that the way of God's kingdom, that God's original design for creation, and primarily for you and for me as, as the pinnacle of creation and humanity, was to image him, to glorify him by imaging him to the world around us. Imagine, if you will, I had a mirror on the stage. And if I angle that mirror at 45 degrees and you're looking at the mirror, what are you going to see? You're going to see the ceiling, right? And if you're hanging from the ceiling for whatever chance and you're looking down on that mirror, what are you going to see? You're going to see what's out in the audience. That is our original design that God has imaged us, has purposed us to reflect who he is and all of his love and all of his goodness and all of his mercy and all of his kindness and all of his compassion, all of his provision Like all that he is, we're meant to image that, to reflect that out to the world around us while simultaneously taking what he has given us in creation and using it to reflect back to him our praise, our adoration, our thanksgiving, our worship. But Genesis also tells us in chapter 3 that man's response to that way, to that purpose, was basically to chuck the deuce and say, I don't want any part of that. Because of fear and insecurity, we doubted that God loved us the way he said he did. And d- did. Instead of following his way, we said, no, we're going to make our own way. We want to be like God. We want the world to glorify us. We want to reflect our awesomeness to the world around us. We want to use the rest of creation to make much of ourselves. That's the way of man. Two kingdoms. The kingdom of God the kingdom of man. And when we live within the concept of God's kingdom, it's there that we are loved and we give love. 
It's there that we can freely give without hesitation and freely receive without shame. It's there that we consider the needs of others as more important than our own. Not out of obligation or religious duty, but because our hearts are so rooted in the unconditional love that God has for us that it just spills over. So but Genesis says that our response to that was to say, no, thank you. I'm going to make my own way instead. Bishop and Professor N.T. Wright said it this way in his book, Simply Christian. He said, setting the stage for the Tower of Babel, the author of Genesis says that while humanity had a mission to reflect God, it had been distracted by its own reflection and was both fascinated and fearful of what it saw. In other words, we all have a bit of narcissism in us. See, the kingdom of man isn't just bad moral choices like lying or stealing or killing. The kingdom of man is, is much deeper than that. It's the heart motivation that takes, looks at all that God created and purpose for his glory, says, I'm going to use it for my glory instead. I'm going to use money and people and relationships and material objects to make much of me rather than to make much of him. And yes, that looks like genocide. Yes, it looks like war. Yes, it looks like mass shootings in nightclubs and little boys washing up on sandy beaches. But it also looks like selfishness and isolation, materialism. It looks like neighbors ignoring one another in time of need and clinging to our busyness and our possessions rather than looking to serve and love one another as God intended. See, God's way, God's kingdom isn't just the avoidance of doing my neighbor harm. Right? It's not just I, that I don't hate my neighbor. The kingdom of God is the intentionality of looking to image God to the people around me, loving my neighbor. In other words, it's our demonstrating to the world around us that there's a better way to be human. But for us to be able to do that, we have to be present enough to know what course corrections are needed. So we can't image God to our neighbors sitting on our sofa watching TV. We can't put God's kindness on display unless we know what neighbors are suffering from rejection. We can't put God's provision on display unless we know what neighbors may not be able to pay their mortgage this month. We can't put his compassion on display unless we know how the single grandmother next door is doing taking care of her three grandchildren. See, that's what guiding our neighbors looks like. That's what making our presence known looks like. It's recognizing where death and darkness have invaded in the areas of our world and then stepping in with the resurrection power of Jesus Christ and bringing new creation into those areas. But we have to be present in order to do that. We have to be participants in our neighborhoods, not just passers-by as we head off to do life somewhere else. And notice what the writer says is the opposite of this kind of neighboring. He says the way of the wicked leads them astray. Now, he doesn't say the way of the wicked ignores his neighbors, but rather leads them astray. Now, listen, I hate to say it, but for you and for me, opting out of this is not an option. See, you and I, we're going to lead our neighbors into one of two directions, whether we want to or not. We're either going to guide them in the right direction as we image God, as we serve them and seek to love them as we're present in our neighborhoods, or by keeping to ourselves, being withdrawn and remaining isolated, we will misrepresent who God is and what his kingdom is all about, and in so doing, lead our neighbors astray. But you will lead your neighbors somewhere. 
Now, I hope that stings to you as much as it does for me. Because I know we all want to be present in our neighborhoods. We want to be the right kind of guide. I hope so. But see, there's this fear that exists in us that makes this incredibly difficult, isn't there? That fear is what I like to call the caution of presence. See, being present is easier said than done. I, I get it. I mean, there's so many other things that we could be doing with our time, like spending, spending time with each other, with people from our community, which is a good thing. Like, we ought to be doing that. We could be spending more time at work in order to, to provide for our families, which we ought to provide for. We could be at the gym. We could be kayaking. We could be playing golf. Or, or for me, building a bocce ball court in my backyard. There's a number of good things. None of those things are bad. There's a number of good things that we could be doing with our time and maybe should be doing with our time. But I think if we're honest, if I'm honest, then far too often I allow that busyness to be an excuse to why I can't be present in my neighborhood. But if we're honest... I think that busyness being an excuse is really because we're afraid of what it might look like. We worry about what that neighbor might say to us. Will they reject us? Will they leech on to us? Will I find myself in a situation I don't want to be in? What if I say the wrong thing? I'm as cautious as the next person to poke my head up and make my presence known in my neighborhood. Honestly, it's just easier to stay anonymous, isn't it? And I know that in some neighborhoods, man, you may actually need to stay anonymous. It may actually be dangerous for you to poke your head up. I get it. And in that situation, man, use wisdom. But if your fear of being present in your neighborhood is rooted more in the perception of what might happen than it is in the reality of what has happened, then let me encourage you the same way the writer of Proverbs encourages us. In 18.1, he says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Now, that first part, that first sentence literally reads this. Whoever causes division because of his lustful desires. Now, you hear the word lust and you immediately jump to pornography or sexual sin. And that's part of it. But lust actually has a much larger connotation to it than just sexual pervertedness. To lust for something is to want it simply for the pleasure that it can bring you. In other words, to lust is when we see God's creation primarily as a means of accomplishing our own pleasure. See, lust is the opposite of love. Love says, because you matter, I want to know what I can do to bring you healing and comfort. While lust says, because I matter, I want to know what you can do to bring me pleasure. See, love is at the center of God's kingdom. While lust is at the center of man's kingdom. And we allow lust with all of its fears and insecurities to keep us isolated and withdrawn. Ultimately what we're saying is this neighborhood and these neighbors primarily exist to serve me rather than I primarily exist to serve them and make the glory of God known in this neighborhood. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in preaching his sermon on the Good Samaritan, which was a parable that... Jesus told in response to the question, well, who is my neighbor? Who am I supposed to be present with? Here's what Dr. King said. The first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? That's the lust mindset. 
But the good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? That's the love mindset. See, it's our lust, our self-preservation that causes us to look the other way when we see a neighbor who's in need. The issue isn't that we're actually too busy to be present in our neighborhoods. The real caution, the real fear that we feel is that we're afraid of what being present might actually cost us. How difficult it might be. What we might have to give up. And in that fear, we give way to the lust of our hearts and in doing so, forsake the love of Christ that our neighbors so desperately need to see lived out on a regular basis. Which brings us to our third point, the courage of presence. You may be familiar with the story of Witold Pilecki. Pilecki was a Polish resistant fighter in the 1940s when Nazi Germany invaded Poland. Now, after the invasion, Pilecki began to, to notice and begin to gain information about what the Nazis were doing in their concentration camps. See, the Nazis had told the rest of the world these were just prisoner of war camps. But what Pilecki saw with his own eyes was something very, very different. And when he saw his neighbors, his people, being hauled away by trainloads to their death and their demise, he said, something's got to be done. I cannot look the other way. And he did something unthinkable, something that was, oh my gosh, courageous. Pilecki got himself thrown into Auschwitz, the most dangerous concentration camp in World War II. And while in Auschwitz, suffering at the hands of the Nazis, Pilecki was gathering intel, gathering information, trying to be a guide to his people. And he was smuggling that information out through the laundry so that the surrounding people could know what was going on. And it was, it's documented that one of the main reasons that the allies finally jumped in and said, we've got to do something, we've got to do it now, is because of the information that Pilecki was able to sneak out of Auschwitz. Now, I can only imagine that Pilecki had some fears cross his mind when the thought entered that he was going to have to actually go into the concentration camp to rescue his neighbors. And rightfully so. But he had the same mindset that President Roosevelt talked about in that same time period when Roosevelt said this, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is more important than fear. Now listen, I'm not saying getting to know your neighbors is the same as sneaking into a concentration camp. Although some of you may be going, no, you don't know my neighbors. What I am saying, though, is this. If Pileski can overcome his fear of death to save the lives of his neighbors, then surely we can overcome our fear of rejection and inconvenience in order to build relationships with ours. You see, when we give in to fear, we isolate ourselves. But when we have courage, oh, when we have courage, we can be the kind of people that Proverbs 27 talks about. He says, do not forsake your friend and your father's friend and do not go to your brother's house the day of calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. So it takes courage to be that neighbor who is near. Now, a few months ago when we did the, the Art of Neighboring series, uh, some friends of ours from our community group decided, you know what, we're going to take this seriously. We're going to start being intentional about how we can be present and, 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 and connect with our neighbors. Not long after that, one of her neighbors suffered some, oh man, immense tragedy. This neighbor's husband and oldest son were killed, tragically killed in a car accident. 
And so my friend moved with compassion, moved with this desire to want to be there in her neighborhood, to want to be present for this neighbor, began to thank me, what can I do? What can I do? And actually, she was at a bit of a loss. But what do you say to someone you rarely know, that you barely even know, when that kind of moment hits them? Sorry? And so she was tempted to just withdraw, to to pull back and say, well, I, I don't know what to do, so I won't do anything. But then she heard that through some other neighbors, a care calendar had been set up where you could go sign up to, to bring meals to this family and to sit with them in their time of need. And so she signed up and she took one meal the first week, two meals the next week, three meals the week after. And every time she would just hand deliver these meals and give a warm, friendly greeting and let the woman know that she was praying for her. Well, not long after that, the opportunity presented itself for her to, to go and just sit with this woman. And she walked into her house, not knowing what to expect, not knowing what she was going to say or if she needed to say anything, and just sat there for three hours, just being there, being a shoulder to cry on, praying for this woman, letting her know she wasn't alone in her pain and in her sorrow. Well, a few days after that, this, my friend and her son are outside in the front yard playing and she sees the son of this neighbor come out in the front yard because she, she's been in the house and she's connected with him a bit. She walks over and lets the boys start playing together, something this little boy desperately needed. Well, they begin to shoot baskets and my friend begins to show this little boy how to dribble and how to shoot with proper form and begins to invest in them and connect with them on an ongoing basis to the point where eventually the little boy starts asking his mom, Mom, can you call Miss So-and-so down there to come play basketball with me? I want to play basketball with her. And she'd come down, and they'd connect. Until today, they're in each other's homes on a regular basis. They're sharing meals on a regular basis. And when this woman is overwhelmed with sorrow and pain, and the, the thought of her husband comes to her, you know who she picks up the phone and calls? The neighbor who had the courage to be present in a difficult situation. That's what being a neighbor who is near looks like. Rather than letting fear focus you on your own insecurity, it's letting courage lead you into the great adventure that God has called you to be on with your neighbors. But oh, fear is a powerful force, isn't it? It makes us do all sorts of stupid things. And listen, just having some Stuart Smalley session where you look in a mirror and say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me is not going to get you over that hump. No, you've got to have something that's beyond you, something that's bigger than you, something that's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which brings us to our last heading, the king of presence. So our last proverb today tells us this, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor. Now, that phrase bountiful eye means one who seeks to benefit the welfare of another. And how does the wise person seek to benefit the welfare of others? Well, it says he shares his bread with the poor. In other words, when people who lack the resources are in need, when they are surrounded by people who, who, who can't solve their own problems, the wise man or the wise woman shares what he or she has to ensure that those neighbors get what they need, to make sure that they're cared for. And we're not just talking about material items here, though that's included. We're talking about compassion, our time, our our conversations, our emotions, or just being present, sitting with someone for three hours. Now, if you were the neighbor who was in need and, and you knew that the person who lived next door to you had your back like that, how do you think you would feel? 
To know that your neighbor considered you valuable enough to give you what they had so that you could have what you needed. Well, my hope is you would be grateful. That you would feel cared for, you would feel loved, you would feel comfortable enough to talk to that person on a regular basis. You might even be bold enough to look to, to serve that neighbor the same way that they have served you. You see, when you receive love like that, it makes it much easier to love others in return, doesn't it? So it makes it much easier to find the courage to engage and build relationships with people when you have a source of love that's been given to you. And why is that? Well, it's because what the Apostle John tells us in one of his letters. 1 John four eighteen and 19, he says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. See, fear that we feel when it, when it comes to being present in our neighborhoods is ultimately rooted in the belief that something bad may happen to us. Right? I, I may be rejected. I may, it may be awkward. I may say the wrong thing and, and they'll think something about me, that I'm stupid or whatnot. Fear is rooted in something bad might happen to me. And for some, that fear may be physical harm. For some, it may be rejection. For some, it may just be that your routine gets interrupted. But you see, what John's telling us is that is our mindset. And we simply don't know how loved we are. And not just loved by our neighbors, but loved by our ultimate neighbor. You see, Jesus, the Messiah, and looking to benefit the welfare of his people, stepped out of the comfort and convenience of his throne room in heaven and entered into our world and became who? Emmanuel, God with us. He learned to speak our language, to eat our food. He learned of our joy and of our pain and made his presence known. And he didn't just give us bread in our poverty. He became the bread of life. He didn't just give us what we needed to solve a temporary problem. He became what we needed to solve the ultimate problem of sin. And the night before his crucifixion, Jesus sat down with a group of men closest to him to share a meal. In Matthew 26, 26 through 28, it says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. From there, Jesus and his friends went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, and kneeling in the garden, cautious and afraid of what was awaiting him, which wasn't just the agony and the physical pain of the cross, but even more so the loss of the presence of the Father in his life, the loss of relationship that he had had for all of eternity. And in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that fear, he prayed, Father, not my will, but your will be done. He had the courage to do what needed to be done. Then he took my place and your place in the darkness. And being separated from the Father's presence, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, he swallowed up all of the fear and all of the darkness so that you and I could take his place in the beauty and the glory of the presence of the God who is with us. And when you see that Jesus has loved you like that, 
He wasn't just willing to give you bread, but he was willing to become the bread that was broken on your behalf. Man, it strengthens you. It fortifies you. It emboldens you and encourages you to be who God has called you to be. Because when you know the king of the universe has loved you like that, that he has given you an endless supply of love and acceptance and affirmation from the one who was the same yesterday, today, and forever, and you can find what you need in him. Listen, there's no fear in giving what you have to those who are in need. Like, I don't care what my neighbor says about me. He or she cannot take away what Jesus has already said about me. And now I can step into any and every situation with a boldness and a confidence. See, this is what we're called to be, Mosaic. Not just a bunch of strangers who gather in a building for an event on Sunday mornings. But a people who make our presence known in the city. As we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love our neighbors as ourselves and seek to be bringers of the kingdom of God into the world in which he's placed us. Oh, and here's the beauty. After his resurrection and just before his ascension, Jesus gathered his followers together one last time and gave them this charge. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And listen, y'all, if Jesus, the King of the universe, is with us, and surely we can be with them. We can be present in our neighborhoods. We can be with our neighbors. We can face those fears and those anxieties head on. Say, oh, no fear. You're not going to define me. You're not going to, to rob me of what God has called me to. I belong to one who supersedes you. I belong to one who is greater than you. I belong to the ultimate king who left his throne to come be present with me so that I can be present with them. So here's what we're going to do. You're passing the elements right now. In your hand, you're going to be holding a piece of bread and a cup. We're going to do what Christians have been doing for the last 2,000 years, what Jesus did with his disciples. See, when Jesus wanted to encourage his disciples to go into the world and be who he called them to be, he didn't give them a theory. He didn't give them a concept. He gave them a meal. Now, why is that? Because a meal is something we take into ourselves. See, apart from Jesus, this is just a poor attempt to hold you over to lunch. But what Jesus turned this into was a physical reminder of his physical presence in our life. See, Jesus isn't just some spiritual being, some ethereal concept that we gather on Sundays and go, oh yes, that's nice, Jesus is with me, I get that spiritually, yes, he's with me, and so I can go do some good moral deeds. No, this meal is meant to, to serve as a reminder that Jesus said, no, 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 my body was physically broken for you. Thomas put his hands in the side of my chest. When Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age, he's not just saying, in theory, 
I'm a concept you can hold on to. He's saying, I am with you. My presence is with you. Now go and take my presence to be with them. 